Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, uh, where I just saw what Yoram has in the notes for the introduction. Um, we usually talk about plant science. Apparently, we're going to be talking about some inappropriate things this afternoon, morning, whenever you're listening to it. Uh, I'm Tegan. That's Yoram. Yes. Hi. Hi, I'm Yoram, and uh, TikTok has ruined my brain. Um, that's what we're going to talk about now at the beginning, I decided. Um, just because uh, I realized when I was researching topics for today, I was browsing through headlines from papers and my brain did weird things. And then I realized why it does these weird things because I'm so much on TikTok. And I mean, you, you know TikTok as well. It has this algorithm. It's really unforgiving. Everybody's afraid of the algorithm. Everybody wants to be featured by it, but also everybody is afraid of it because if you say bad things and nobody knows exactly what the bad things are, you might get shadow banned or other bad things might happen to you. So everybody's like tiptoeing around certain words. Um, they know that mentioning other social networks is bad, but also lots of like things that relate to violence and sexual activity are bad. And therefore they they use words to to describe them. And I realized that these words, they all like trickled into my brain. I mean, you've seen the list now. Um, mm. I'm, I don't think we should say. Can we say them? I, don't know I can say the, the safe words, and then you, could, like the listeners, can figure out what they mean. I just know, know in my head already. I'm, I'm very often thinking about unalive instead of using mm -hmm. the the real word for it. Um, yeah. Then often people say they work in accounting and they do that specifically so that they don't get any follow up questions because when you are at a party and you don't want to discuss your job, if you say. I work in accounting, nobody will ask follow-up questions. Nobody will like, oh, but at what company? But what? Mm -hmm. how do you do that in your day-to-day -day life? So if you do something that society doesn't really like to, uh, doesn't really like at all, if you say accounting, that's a safe bet to get out of the conversation. Um, then um, the, the stuff that really got me was corn. Um, that rhymes with a bad word, and that's why it's used. And um, I've seen this come up in like different contexts on on TikTok, and sometimes even they used a the corn emoji. Uh, and then when I was browsing papers and I was reading, plant patho uh, pathologists collaborate to share knowledge on a growing threat to corn production. My mind went elsewhere, and that really confused mm. me. So that's my story: how TikTok ruins reading paper titles for me. And plants, especially. I mean, I think I have a kind of similar thing for our for our other podcast, The Plant Book Club. We read a Michael Pollan book, The Botany of Desire, and there's a chapter about tulips. So, and in in it, he spends a good four or five pages going on about how tulips to him look like a certain part of the male anatomy. And I think he's wrong and stupid in this element, not generally. Um. But now every time I see a tulip, that's just, yeah. I think of that. And then I think of how annoyed I am that that is now the link. I love tulips and I'm really not happy that that's the link in my mind now every time I see a tulip. It's like yeah. tulip and male anatomy and then being mad at Michael Pollan. This is the, <laughs> you know, within a millisecond, that's where my brain goes. Like, yeah, Why, really Why are you ruining this for me? It really has something from don't think about a red car. And of course, immediately you think about a red car. You can't not think about a red car once you say that. And this is the same with these these trigger words that um, you you think in your head, you don't think about the bad stuff of it. And of course, then the bad stuff is the stuff that takes the spotlight and creates sometimes funny misunderstandings. Sometimes it's just, yeah, sometimes I'm just confused. I'm just, what are they talking about now? And then realize, oh, I'm not on TikTok. This has, this is the literal meaning of it, not the, let's, let's tiptoe around the algorithm. I'm actually on Web of Science right now. <laughs> it's not, yeah, weird. Although, like, this, this ties <laughs> something I've just seen on Twitter that, um, have you heard that Amazon is banning words now in their internal chat app? Oh, I saw that too, yeah. Yeah, because they've they finally got a union and Amazon is not happy about it, so they're banning <laughs> they ban words. So like they banned union, but they also banned unity, <laughs> which I thought was like... And also like... In case somebody living, misspells. Living wage and restroom and lots of things that you might use in a conversation. And somebody just posted a screenshot. They wanted to talk um, about a show that's, that they're watching with an actor uh, actress that's called Gabrielle Union. And they, mm. <laughs> the name was censored, and they're like, "What's happening here?" They were trying to type that, and I was like, "Yeah, if you were on TikTok, you would have no problem. You would then say, I 'I don't know, Gabriel Onion,' and then Onion, go, yeah, go <laughs> would just be like, and then like the onion emoji at one point because they also work out that onion is, yeah, yeah." 
Hmm. <laughs> All right, shall we talk? Shall we talk about our, our favorite plots? I think like we don't want to talk too much about the, the rest of the week, otherwise, right? Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about plants. My favorite plant. And my favorite plant today is the cowpea, or a variety of it is also known as the black-eyed pea, uh, Vicna unguiculata. And this is a black-eyed pea, as you might imagine, is a legume. Uh, And you know, like I do, what legumes do. (laughs) Do you want to tell us what legumes do? Make you gassy or fix nitrogen? Like, which answer were you going for? <laughs> I mean, yes, to both. Um, but I want to talk today about the uh, nitrogen fixation. Um, they Legumes okay. are famously known for having these root nodules where they uh, form a symbiosis with bacteria uh, that can fix nitrogen. And then the bacteria give nitrogen to the plant and the plant gives sugars to the bacteria. And this is very cool. This is not something that black-eyed peas are specifically great at um, compared to other legumes that exist. Um, But we'll come to why I chose this legume now. Um, Just a little bit on the history of it. It was domesticated in Africa, one of the oldest crops actually to be farmed. We know from like... uh, uh, archaeological uh, records. Uh, apparently, there was also a second domestication event in Asia before it sort of made its way to a larger area to the way it's used now. Uh, it really thrives in dry conditions. Um, it can grow in something like 80% per- uh, sandy soils, which most other plants, they would be like, hey, I'd like to have some nutrients. <laughs> nope, nope, something else nope. than sand, please. Um mm. And so today we mostly grow black-eyed peas in the Sahel zone in in Africa. So that's sort of the central western area of Africa where it's the main growing region for these black-eyed peas because there you have above 30 degrees Celsius um, temperatures and the hot temperatures that these these plants need to thrive. And I picked this plant today because I found um, a paper that's called... uh, or, or yeah, um, actually, I don't know what the paper is called. I found a story about it. It's called Black Eyed Peas Could Help Eliminate the Need for Fertilizer. Um, because they looked at black eyed peas uh, in, in the agricultural context and how well they are doing the nitrogen fixation, how well they're working with the fixation, uh, with, the, with the symbiosis. Because there's an effect that we see, for example, in soybean and wheat, that during domestication, we sort of selected against the plant, un- involuntarily selected against the plants that are really great at doing symbiosis with bacteria in their roots. So they okay. sort of, yeah, they're, they're less great at it than their wild relatives because we selected other traits like above ground biomass or resistance to certain pests or some stuff like that. So um, if you look at soybeans now, according to this paper, uh, the domesticated soybeans are less good at doing symbiosis with root bacteria than wild relatives of soybean. And I wanted to know if, if the same is true for black-eyed peas. So they, they looked at the populations of um, root-dwelling bacteria, or the ones that do the symbiosis that fix nitrogen in black-eyed peas in domesticated lines, compared them to wild relatives, and also did some genomic anal- uh, analysis to figure out potential markers what is what that are related to this, these traits and i found that black-eyed peas even though being domesticated and being selected for for a long time for maybe other traits they're still very good at fixing nitrogen uh, in the soil in when when grown on the field and this makes them really interesting for uh for agriculture because then if you think about growing them in the field in a crop rotation they can sort of replenish the nitrogen in the soil in between your other crops and they have another trait where before they die they sort of uh, open the root nodules and release the bacteria into the soil so when you have grown black-eyed peas in the soil after you harvest the plants you have a larger population of nitrogen fixing bacteria that remain in the soil and then they can be beneficial for whatever you plant next on that field so uh, the the researchers 
speculate or say this could be an interesting thing to include uh, black eyed peas in in crop rotation to reduce the need for artificial fertilizers and to just increase the nitrogen that's in the soil and available to the plants um, and essentially making agriculture more sustainable. I mean, of course, that still depends on um, high growing temperatures. Like in Germany, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. You can't grow black eyed peas here effectively. uh, And in many other places you can't. But for example, in California, you can. They have these high temperatures. They also have rather a problem with supplying enough water to their crops. So they could grow black-eyed peas there in their crop rotations and replenish some of the nitrogen that they use for the other crops, potentially. Yeah, and that's why I picked black-eyed peas this week as my um, favorite plant. Vigna unguiculata. Um, you mentioned that I should also have a quick look at this um, species. And I didn't. You told me I should. And I made some stupid comment about how you've chosen the hardest species to actually Google. So I just had a quick look now. And it looks like we do have the genome of cowpea um, from 2019. And it's also possible to genome edit with CRISPR-Cas. So like both of those have been done as far as, you know, starting to know what we're doing if we want to manipulate this for further breeding. Mm -hmm. And I also found out that you can make a cowpea milk, which Uh I guess that could be fine. It sounds a little bit disgusting to me. I'm really into nut milks, but I'm not sure about bean milks. Um, Yeah. Did I I mention that I tried potato milk the other day? Yeah, and that it wasn't great. I remember that. But cowpea milk could have the massive marketing advantage as you write cow very large, pea very small, and then milk large. (laughs) And then consumers will think... It's the only one that gets past (laughs) the EU regulations. It's like, this actually is milk because it comes from a cow pea. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And you can also ferment it. So you could also make cow pea yogurt um, if you are into that kind of thing. Yeah. It doesn't sound that great. I mean, I've I've actually bought recently some some black eyed peas um, to cook, and I I quite enjoy them. But yeah, they they're mostly grown. But do they have that kind of soya flavor? Because like I mean, soy milk is it's very mm. distinct. I much prefer like the oaty, I used to nutty make- things. In combination with several other peas uh, or beans, so I couldn't specifically make them out. Like I made a bean stew, and so therefore everything mm. tasted like bean, but. I don't know. They had a nice like bite to them, and that's why I like them. Diversity in the class. Science. And this week it is my turn, and I sort of did a weird rabbit holey, wormholey thing to get to these two people who I want to talk about briefly today. So I was reading a paper, and I saw mention of a plant that was ribes something. Do you know what genus ribes is? No. Um, so it's a pretty, it's something that you would have definitely come across. There's about 200 known species. It's a flowering plant and it's a genus that includes all currants and goodsberries. And Mm -hmm. the clue and what kind of made me excited was that my brain suddenly clicked and I was like, oh, Ribes nigrum is black currant. That's why Ribena is called Ribena because it's got the first part of the genus for the black currant that goes into Ribena. Uh Uh-huh. No? Okay, I don't I don't even know what Ribena is, to be fair. Like, I also don't know what Ribena is. Okay, so Ribena is a soft drink that's pretty common, like, in the UK, in Australia, I guess in New Zealand as well. It's, um, okay. a, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a blackcurrant-based drink. Um, very, very sweet, very popular with children. It's kind of a cordial, so, um, yeah, really quite sugary. Yeah. But it... Was sort I mean, of then, originally... then your reference makes sense. Then I understand why that was interesting to you. For me, it's a <laughs> nonsensical word. And it's okay, it's fine. I do think, I think like the UK has quite a thing about like what they call squashes, which are just sort of concentrated fruit or fruit flavored cordials. So you sort of have this and you add extra water and dilute it to to the right sort of consistency. But so Rabena was actually developed way back in like the 1930s. It was actually developed by, you know, a scientist um, at the University of Bristol, so in the UK here. And they, yeah, he, he made this drink and they named it Ribena. And it was sort of quite mm, doing fine. But then in the Second World War, it became really hard to get oranges and other foods that were rich in vitamin C. And because black currants themselves have a, quite a lot of vitamin C, they sort of sold this as a drink that's going to give you the vitamin C that you need. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it was actually, I think, given out for free um, to people as sort of like this is the the wartime drink to for the children to have so that the kids got it for free. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you get your milk for your calcium and you get your Rivena for your vitamin C. Um, and it's just to, to mention the the company is owned or like Rabina is this thing, is is owned by this GlaxoSmithKline, which is a super huge like pharmaceutical company. I think something I saw said that it was second only to Pfizer on the Ooh. world stage. But I, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's like it's the sixth largest in fact. So Pfizer, Novartis, Roche, Sanofi, Merkant, then this one. Um huge big pharmaceutical company that was also owning this drink, um, which is actually a cordial, but it was sort of s- said sold as a a healthy medical almost kind of drink because of the vitamin C, right? Um, so it sort of fit mm-hmm. in with that story. So the scientists I want to actually talk about today are two schoolgirls who were in New Zealand, and their names are Anna Devatasan and Jenny Sue. And so they were actually just in high school and they were doing a school science experiment and they were using ready-to-drink Ribena, um, so this blackcurrant-based cordial, and they were testing for how much vitamin C was found. And at the time, there was ads running that said something like, the blackcurrants in Ribena have four times the vitamin C of oranges. And maybe you can already pick apart something with the wording. So the wording mm-hmm. is the black currants in Ribena have four times the vitamin C of oranges. Um, but these girls are sort of testing Ribena, this ready-to-drink Ribena that they were buying from New Zealand. And they were comparing it to, you know, things like orange juice. And they thought that they were actually making a mistake with the, the way they were doing the science um, because they were sort of getting that there was no vitamin C in what they were measuring. Um, and, you None. know, they measured orange juice. <laughs> Basically none. I mean, they couldn't they couldn't <laughs> identify it as far as I can tell um, from the the various articles. Um, and then they were testing other things like orange juice, and they're just like, okay, this it's working with the orange juice. What's what's going on? After a while, they ended up actually f- writing to GlaxoSmithKline, so the manufacturers. Um, they got no response from writing to them. They then phoned the company, and they were just basically like given this really short answer they were like yeah the black currants have the vitamin c what do you like you know that's it and kind of got like almost hung up on but this story was then picked up by a consumer affairs program so it's called fago and they sort of took this findings into like the commerce commission so sort of uh, a watchdog that sort of checks that the the consumer is being not lied to basically and as it turns out there's Basically, yeah, no detectable level of vitamin C in this ready-to-drink Ribena that the girls <laughs> were testing. So they, they were correct um, and there wasn't any vitamin C. And that was in 2017. And then it actually ended up going to court, basically. So this um, consumer protection agency ended up suing the company. They had to pay 192000 I think, Australian dollars, so like 200 thousand New Zealand dollars I don't know why I'm writing this in Australian anyway they had to pay money um so the company (laughs) the company argued that they shouldn't be fined very much and they should just sort of like it should be let go but in the end they got fined you know it's still not very much it's a huge company right so like even even 200,000 New Zealand Australian dollars it's like 150,000 euros it's nothing for a pharmaceutical company but they did also have to put a message on their website sort of mentioning this and also run corrective advertisements to say that they had done the wrong thing and I think there was that really specific wording which implied you know if you read it very carefully you could see okay black the the black current themselves contains this not necessarily this ready to drink juice but one of the things i found also says that the ready to drink ribena had a claim that it had like seven milligrams of vitamin c per 100 mils which is not the case so i'm i'm not sure if there was also something that was actually directly wrong um based on how it was made but in any case kind of a cool thing and I really like the fact that these two schoolgirls were the ones who who found it and also when they found it they thought they made the error and it turned out they had sort of unearthed a little bit of a mystery <laughs> I also was um yeah. 
I was trying to look into these two people and it looks like Jenny is now in fact working as a reporter. So I was like trying to stalk the two of them across the internet. I couldn't find Anna. I couldn't find her profile. Yeah, but it looks like Jenny So is now working for TV New Zealand. So she's sort of got a little spotlight for the red bean and she actually I found some articles where she's like yeah this was the first time when I was on the other side like I was being questioned by journalists and now I'm you know switched to the other side of the bench and I'm I'm asking people things yeah sometimes I wonder when it just takes or just I mean it's it's a cool experiment that they did but it takes on a couple of schoolgirls to measure what's actually in the in the drinks I wonder how no official body ever did such a measurement. Um, but I think, yeah, the regulation for, for foods and drinks is very different from other stuff. Um, they don't have to necessarily be measured by independent bodies and then sort of cross-checked and validated before they they can publish their stuff. Well, one thing I couldn't find is, so some of the articles suggested that it was the company themselves made a statement that it was really only a problem like in New Zealand and I think maybe Australia as well. It wasn't a general problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that if in maybe those countries they had a different version of the ready to drink cordial, which maybe had less actual real fruit or, you know, just more sugar or something like that compared to the real fruit content of the original one. So maybe there had been some difference that was specific to that country and that hadn't been tested and they had sort of made calculations based on the concentrate that didn't really turn out to be true. Um, I'm not sure. I, I it's, it's, it's a long time ago by internet standards and also, you know, there's kind of this, this statements by the company which seem like them maybe also covering things like covering their butts a bit, right? So... Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's purely speculation, but if you have such a specific wording in your advertisement that you say the black currants contain four times as much vitamin C as oranges uh, that are in the drink, I think they know what was up. Otherwise, why would you make such a such a specific claim? There's always the overly specific dementi where you say where like in one certain case you make your claim and and um therefore excluding all other broader claims from it and i think this is what happened here so but i guess those those rules can also like depend like can vary country to country right so yeah. they might have stricter protection so even if the the claim is technically correct if it's deliberately said in a way to deceive that might also be yeah you know caught up on as well let's talk 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 about bias bias, bias. bias. I'm so scared. <laughs> yeah, Tegan saw the notes already. I have something that's only indirectly related to plants, um, but very related to science and how we do scientific studies and how we want to avoid certain biases. Because in biology, we have certain things we try we do to avoid biases but we are not as strict as for example in medicine um in medicine i don't know if, if you were aware but um maybe for our listeners who yeah don't read medical papers that much or don't know how the the process they work is that when you want to do a study in the medical field you have to pre-register your study at the beginning before you do your first experiment you have to register what kind of study you want to do, uh, what you want to measure, what your hypothesis is, and what sort of the main data points are that you want to look at to draw your conclusion from. Um, and you do mm -hmm. that to avoid... Is that for all studies? I or think just, for all I medical... Know you can pre okay. I know you can pre-register. I didn't know that you had to for all medical studies. I think it's one of these like ethical things where sort of for, for good scientific practice, you have to do that. I don't know if it's sort of necessary by law in that respect, but it's sort of the standard for medical studies is to be to be taken seriously, that you register your study, you perform your study, you publish your study. And they do that mm. to avoid certain biases. I think some of them that we talked about already in the past. For example, um, that you, by describing in the first place what you want to do, and then doing it and then publishing it, you avoid just the, the thing where you collect just a bunch of data, randomly look at it and then think, oh yeah, this looks interesting. This is what I will write my paper about. Mm. Because then 
just by statistical chance, you will find sometimes interesting effects in a very large data set, if you consider that 5% of the things are significantly different just by chance. Um, and then you pick these 5% and then you publish that, then you have something that's less meaningful because this is sort of a statistical error that you're publishing instead of something that you set out to prove. Um, so that's why you have to describe beforehand what you want to measure. Um, and it also avoids stuff like cherry picking only the good results. Let's say you, you do a certain treatment and you have a financial interest in um, selling that treatment afterwards. And then you do a couple of studies and you figure out that in some studies your treatment doesn't work, in some other studies it does. Um, uh, and then you only publish the positive ones. Then, of course, sort of the scientific community gets a wrong image about the treatment and then people get the treatment uh, when it doesn't actually work for them. And that's why mm -hmm. even negative results have to be pu published when you register your study and you figure out the treatment doesn't work. You still publish the study that says the treatment doesn't work, um, at least in like ethical medical studies. And that is then also linked to... Um, fighting the underreporting of negative outcomes, something that we talked, I think, like endlessly on this show about it in in plant science or many other like non-medical sciences, you don't really publish negative results when you do a test and the outcome just says no effect, then you usually don't publish that because it's very hard to get that into a paper. But in medical research, when you registered your study, you then also published a negative outcome to to say something like, I don't know, something made up, vitamin C has no effect on blood pressure, even though, uh, because you wanted to test that. Um, mm -hmm. And you do all of these because in in medical sciences, like ethics are very important. You don't want to do science and then create treatments or, or therapies that are then used on real people that don't actually work, that can cause harm or that are just useless and, and um, the side effects are maybe worse than the actual effects that you want to observe. But now a study was done that looked at all of these mechanisms in a certain field, and I mean, you've, you've seen my notes, who is sort of dwelling in the field of medical sciences, but is not really a medical science. It's, it's homeopathy! <laughs> yeah. There was an, um, a study in the, it's called Assessing the Magnitude of Reporting Bias in Trials of Homeopathy, a Cross-Sectional Study and Meta-Analysis, published in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And they looked at a very large group of um, studies that were published from the field of homeopathy and checked how do they behave in context of these biases um, and they found some things that if you are cynical like me you are not really surprised by it um, that that um, people who research homeopathy work like this is um, that they some of them first of all not a lot of studies from them are registered um, there's a large pro um, uh, percentage over 50, like 53 percent of studies that are published in homeopathy are unregistered so they didn't do the pre-announcement of saying we will study this this thing this is what we're going to look at this is what our hypothesis is and this is for the next three years we will do this and then we will publish this they don't do that at all and for mm -hmm. the ones that are registered um, not all of them are published. There's 38% um, of the ones that are actually registered end up not being published at all. And so the ones that are published, they are most are very often positive about homeopathy. But if you look at all the ones that aren't registered beforehand and, or aren't published, you get to wonder, like, why are they not published? Are they maybe not finding that the treatments work? Are these maybe studies that show that homeopathy doesn't work? And they, by introducing this, uh, like, or following this, fo falling to this bias, the researchers involved in this, um, yeah, paint a nicer or, like, a more positive picture of homeopathy than is actually reality. Um, there were also 25% of all studies that were registered. They altered the primary outcome in the publication. So they registered it and said, we're going to look at trade A. And then in the publication, they looked at trade B and something that was unrelated to the thing that they said that they registered before. Probably because they found that the thing that they registered for, that didn't work. But in their large data set that they collected, they found something else interesting. 
probably due to statistical effects, and then they publish that instead. Um, and all of that together just shows that um, if you look at studies regarding homeopathy, you have to be very, very careful um, if you want to draw any uh, medical or clinical conclusions from that. You have to be aware that there is a massive underreporting um, issue in, in that field. And that, yeah, by ethical standards, by the standards that we take or use for all kinds of other medical sciences, homeopathy doesn't follow these standards. And therefore, even if you find a study that's, um, uh, yeah, that looks at homeopathy and is done by homeopathy um, researchers, you have to be very careful about what they find and what conclusions you draw from it reported your arm in a very unbiased way um because because what you're talking about is really only related to plants in let's say a very diluted way i do also want to mention about this that i'm not sure how this applies to sort of the vitamin or other sort of health industry as well um but I, I do mention that I whenever I'm scrolling, so quite often I just type plant into PubMed, which I'm I'm sure is the worst way to look for plant information. But I just and then sort of scroll through the recently published things to see what sort of has popped up recently on the topic of plants. Um, and quite a large amount of the papers are about medicinal properties of various plants. And I'm not sure if there's been any studies looking into the reporting bias um, or, yeah, just, just general biases in reporting that plants have – various plants have various effects, yes or no, as well. Um, yeah. I guess that might also be something, but I, I haven't looked into it, so I don't know what the, the background yeah. is there. What I wondered after reading all of this is if we should have more of the safeguards you find in medical research, also in biological research. I know that it would create a lot of more complications if we would have to pre-register all the studies that we do in plant science and then um, yeah, sort of describe in great detail beforehand what we want to do and, and then do the research and then publish it, or if that would hinder us more i i don't know but we, we as we talk so often about the problem of not publishing negative results i wondered if i don't know a way around that would be if we actually register our studies beforehand and then publish it no matter what even if we find that whatever we do to the soil does have no effect on the plant that's growing on it mm. i mean i think these discussions have been had like on and off for for years mm -hmm. and years and years in in the sort of question of how how and when to publish and i yeah i think some journals have sort of made those moves but i'm not sure that how what the uptakes like i don't know yeah. what the community thinks about it i guess i always um i always suspect that even if you you know even if you register a study um if you then find a really really exciting answer you might not submit to the same place that you already read usually you would re register the study with maybe that journal right or would you register it independently i actually um, don't know then, if it, how it how it works i i imagined it is a sort of an independent body where you register it and then based on if it's a big outcome then you go to the big journal and if it's a smaller outcome you go to a smaller journal because i think this is something that's impossible to predict you can't say this study that we're doing here this will end up in science um it's impossible because you could say like vitamin C has an impact on, you know, common colds and then you do your study and you find out that not just it has an impact, it also like, you know, it cures everybody of the common cold immediately and also gives them the ability to shoot lasers from their eyes for three minutes. And obviously that's going to be like a science story, not yeah. an obscure journal of vitamin C story, right? So that's... <laughs> the journal of Ascovate like, research. <laughs> I bet, I bet you there's something you're... Yeah, you're I, should, I should not be joking. There's probably some serious journal there in that field. I mean, that's also like, I mean, also kind of you're, you're now casting shade on the, the journal of ascorbate research. But like, that's the thing. That's the thing with negative studies, right? Like, if you do have these negative results, you need that there are journals that will publish this. And uh, like a lot of journals will be like, well, why would we publish this? This is a, a result showing nothing, basically, effectively. Yeah. So, you know, then you do need to have the journal of ascorbate so that the people who are interested in ascorbate can read this negative result about ascorbate, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe we we need a like a bad bank. We need a bad journal that takes all of the faulty, <laughs> all of the things that didn't work, and then you just browse through that and you just 
It's not a bad knowledge. journal. It's just like a lower <laughs> impact, like lower. I mean, yeah, it's it's sort of a nicher. I think is yeah. the. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about some uh, other things that happen in the world of plant science. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I have two very quick things. Um, you know how we often mention that we like papers which have fun titles, and I think I've actually I have to I have to look at it for in a couple of weeks' time when I am on the bias. I think I've seen a paper that says that journals that have fun titles are more cited if they have something like interesting. And silly in the title. So um, the first one I want to mention is just very quickly. It's published in Seminars in Cell and Developmental Biology. I don't know this, so maybe it's a seminar, not an actual paper. Um, but the title is No Hormone to Rule Them All. And then Interactions of Plant Hormones During the Response of Plants to Pathogens. Like a few points there for getting a lot of the rings reference in, <laughs> I would say. I don't know that it really fits broadly, except it does fit with my general hatred of hormone research as far as, like, I was something I always wanted to avoid when I was actually an active um, plant biologist in the lab, because the basically the paper, it's, it's sort of a... Um, review and it's discussing the fact that there's not one hormone that's doing everything they're all interacting with each other which is why studying these things is such a bastard because you you know start studying one and before you know it you're studying everything um not just the hormones but every other thing that the hormones are interacting with in the plant so i do kind of get their point there um although i'm not yeah. convinced i didn't read the full text so maybe they come back to the lord of the Rings references further in text i mean i would i would fine. i would give it to them i would give it to them if all of the hormones they're discussing are ring shaped then i would be like okay fair enough if like you're constantly oh, talking about are. hormone rings i mean i have no idea and it also depends on like how small you, i think all of them probably have these like um five rings and six carbon rings that you find in molecular structures so i guess you can make the case from that but i imagine them all from like a chlorophyll is a big ring i imagine all of the hormones have to be a big ring and then one ring rules all of the hormones or it doesn't according to this paper okay not important the second so this is expression of antibody genes in plants to modulate plant metabolism or to obtain pathogen resistance but the the header title is the plantibody approach and i think that's my new thing antibodies made inside plants being called plantibodies yeah yeah that's pretty good and i don't know if they came up with it if they did diego and colleagues well done you plantibodies are my new things it just sounds really cute as well <laughs> um then i i have then flaper or Pulper. Plant paper. Plant paper. Oh. Plant based. I mean, all paper is plant based. If, all plant based. <laughs> um, Good. Let's try that again. But this is a new paper. What was the other one? Pulper? Pulper. 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 Paper made of pulp, but paper is also made and of pulp. Not of pulp, but of pollen. Um, this is uh, researchers yeah. have developed a way in, for like, from researchers from Singapore have de developed a way of turning pollen pollen particles into paper and not only that the paper can then be deprinted so uh, what they did is they found a process where you can uh, sort of glue a bunch of pollen particles together also removing any allergen in the process and um, then you create a very thin uh, sheet of paper it's sort of yellowish in color it's very very thin it's like tr almost transparent um, i think 0.03 millimeters thick so very very thin paper um, but then you can okay. print on it with a laser printer and it works they printed something on it um, they, they made sunflower pollen um that they that they use for this experiment and then they can put the paper in an alkaline solution and then in ethanol and it completely removes all of the toner from it and it's clean again and you can print on it again and they, they repeated that up to eight times in the lab so this paper can be washed and printed again and washed and pr printed again and they say this um has huge potential for more ecological use of printing products so if you imagine you get a leaf uh, like a flyer 
and you put that you read that you take the coupon code or whatever from it and then you put that in the recycling and in recycling they actually drop it in this alkaline solution they clean it off they sell it again as clean paper and then it can be printed again a couple of times for stuff that's sort of in in quick circulation um, and we don't have to use fresh paper from it every single time that's the idea of it obviously there's like a very long way to get there to put it mildly um so they the sheets that they made they were sort of like two hands side by side was the size approximately of these sheets that they created they were very very thin i imagine they were also sort of delicate um not something you want to print a newspaper on um and they use sunflower pollen and my only question is can you i don't know if you've clicked on the link but can you guess what they printed on there um, for the demonstration for the paper i just watched the video it's a good video um they put van gogh on there yeah and the sunflowers from van gogh um fitting because they use sunflower pollen for the experiment i just like they say make <laughs> the upside is that you don't have to cut down a tree and destroy a tree to make the paper because the pollen is like actively released from the plant but I wonder like, how much pollen you would need to make a significant <laughs> amount of paper. Um, I mean, yeah, I have. I, there's definitely some comments here. Like, firstly, the, the video is really cool. You should go and watch the video. It's cool to see um, the, the image getting washed off. Um, also, they managed to get a, a little pollen pun in there at the end. This is paper that's not to be sniffed at. Um, so well done to whoever made the video. I don't know. I mean, the washing requires like a basic solution, fine, and then also ethanol, okay. This doesn't seem like a more sustainable thing than using... I mean... Yeah, I, paper production also of- use chemicals and bleaches and like also some obnoxious stuff if you want to make paper from, but from wood okay, pulp. Okay, you're using it eight times here. Are you using it 800 times maybe? But even then, if there's like a washing process when we start having like the trade-off between also like water usage... I'm I'm not sure. Like I'm yeah. I, I think it's on the other hand, like with these technologies, you know, what you see now, it, it could be something miraculous in some generations time, right? So I don't think you should ever look at the beta phase and describe how wonderful the product is, but yeah, I'm as it is now, you're right. It's not it's it's very very far away, um but it's nonetheless very very cool, right? Yeah, I never thought about the idea of deprinting something of te- of removing the toner from it uh effectively and then re- reusing it again. Um and I don't know. I mean, maybe it could be a coating in the future. Maybe we take regular wood-based paper and coat it on both sides and then we can wash it off in certain but yeah it it raises all kinds of questions of like how do you even figure out which paper can be washed off and which paper can't be washed off and um we kind of we do kind of have that already we have like sort of plastic you know overhead sheets where you could do that sort of thing i would guess like i mean you can or whiteboards um i'm also are we what do we print i guess people are printing a lot of things but i i just don't print I very much anymore in the article they ryanair tickets these days is yeah, it my ryanair yeah. ticket that i wash that's like the yeah, one thing that it needs or, to be physical they, they're talking about like shipping labels for example that have to be okay, printed okay. out and if you imagine like all of them have the standard and you can very easily remove the shipping label then from the box to recycle it by wash, rinsing it and then having it go back into the printing process you could construct okay, a like way that. where that makes yeah. sense, yeah. And that makes sense, and it's still it's that's better than having like you know a mini iPad attached to every package that is <laughs> the elect. You know, because the thing like a lot of things are now electronic anyway. So why do you need this? But yeah, okay, there's there's a middle ground still. I'm I'm yeah. thinking too high tech. I mean, it's it's anyway super super cool. Like it's just yeah. it's in an, and of itself cool, whether or not it will save the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have something which is just Yoram. Do you know what aposematism is? Uh, yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know what that is. Uh, so it's basically um, signals, usually like visual signals, um, which can be bright colors or very bold stripy patterns, for example, which are used often by animals to warn that they are dangerous, that you should not come at them and eat them generally. So I think like the most famous one is like those poison arrow frogs, a little brightly yellow and black and red colored frogs that you find. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So very point in essence. Uh, so I found an article, and I think it's really more of an opinion piece uh, in plant signaling behavior. It's a review, but I think it's opinion-based review. It's from a while back. But they're talking about how in animals the those displays are often symmetrical and this has been suggested um because symmetry is sort of it creates more of a a visual it's it's more immediately recognizable and it has more impact Mm -hmm. i think is is the argument and this person is uh, discussing whether you know there are also plants that have spines and whether they these spines themselves might also be aposematic in that you know the spines themselves are giving a pretty strong soft vibe um and then they're also arguing that in some of these organisms some of these plants like agave and aloe they also have symmetry and then having the combination of, you know, the spiky, not nice bits with the symmetry might also be giving a stronger Mm -hmm. sort of message of go away. I'm not really sure. I think the symmetry maybe is like growth based, I I guess like development based. I I just thought it was sort of interesting. I don't know much about this aposematic yeah. thing in plants generally um it sounds to me like a chicken egg problem because yeah as you said i think it's more likely that it's a gross thing like when when you have figured out how to make one side behave in a certain way you sort of just like copy and paste genetically the the process on the other side as well and then create a symmetry instead of coming up with a new way of doing that on the other side and then having an asymmetric thing and then animals and us and everything that evolved together with it then took these these cues and evolved with them and and imp, uh, imparted more meaningness or meaning like more meaning to things that are symmetric than things that are asymmetric um and i think it's rather like to me it would be rather this way but it's an interesting thought it's it's, it's well, i was also kind of thinking about the fact that um so they also use the idea of spines as these o- aposomatic displays and i would say a spine in itself is not really a display it's actually like a the, the threat itself right so if there's a bright red frog sure the fact that it's bright red is saying that it's poisonous if that bright red frog is holding a machine gun the machine gun is not really display anymore if it can actively use the machine gun right like, i mean the spines <laughs> themselves are the physical barrier i'm not sure if it's like a display in as much as actually the thing but there is this thing in in um like plant fruits and i guess we've discussed this before where plants can have signals which can be honest or dishonest right mm-hmm. so one common idea is fruits that ripen and as they become ripe they become a brighter color and you know as part of co-evolution the birds might be more attracted to eating the brighter colored berries and that's a win for everyone because the plants by you know they have this color change and then only when the fruits are ready and ripened you know the plant seed itself is ready enough that the, the 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 fruit can be taken does the bird come and take it so it's to the benefit of the plant that the unripe seeds are not eaten and it's also to the benefit of the bird usually because the ripened seeds have a better reward so the fruits have more sugar you know or starch or something that the birds want so there's like there is these honest and they can also be dishonest displays that plants can give um but I was trying to sort of think about this aposematic thing. So I think it's something mm-hmm. I have to look into more. I just found this before we started the podcast, but I'm I'm kind of curious about plants giving visual displays to go away. Um <laughs> and yeah. them being visual as opposed to just being like big thorns. It's definitely interesting. Uh, I have something talking about the interplay between plants and animals around them. I found a story that where I first thought you talked about this last week, but you talked about something very related, and I will just extend the idea. You talked about um, weeds last week and how weeds are actually often beneficial and how pollinators are drawn to weeds and by keeping weeds around we can increase the fitness of the uh, pollinator population which then again is good for us when the pollinators pollinate our crops and things that we care about Um, and i found a story where they exactly looked at that in mango trees they did an experiment where they grew um, a very simple experiment where they grew a mango tree and they sort of kept the the weeds around it untouched and they they grew mango trees where they cut all of the weeds and kept like a nice clean 
weed-free area around a mango tree. And then they looked how, uh, how successful the pollination rates were, as in how many fruits would they get. Because mango trees rely on pollinators to actually then um, produce fruit. Uh, and they found something that, after hearing your story last week, is not that surprising, um, that trees that were grown with weeds around them had three times more fruit. Um, and they linked that to the larger presence of pollinators because they, they come for the weeds and then they see that there's also mango flowers there and they then also pollinate the mango flowers as well. And overall, like the whole package is just more attractive to a, wide, uh, a wider range of pollinators than the mango mm. tree on its own. And this is interesting because it means that maybe we have to rethink how we manage certain weeds, uh, especially like flowering weeds uh, in agricultural sites. Um, can they be actually beneficial there just by increasing the overall um, sort of... Uh, um, I'm lacking the word here, but sort of the, the, the overall... Um, attraction or attractiveness to pollinators so that they can actually come hang around. They maybe go for a certain weed first and then they find other flowers there as well that are interesting to them. Uh, the final thing I wanted to talk about is it's not that new, actually. I mean, also the thing I just talked about was from 10 years ago. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> today is a day of not only. This is from February. It's a publication that came out in Nature Plants, but I don't think we've mentioned it yet. And I sort of just came across it today. And it kind of hits on, on one of my favorite topics, which is the idea of looking at sort of alternative foods as we move into trying to feed the world. Have we discussed this before, this idea of alternative foods and micronutrients that has come out? Your arm looks confused. So there's a paper that came out that's called Global Plant Diversity as a Reservoir of Micronutrients for Humanity. Um, the paper mentions that, you know, there's a lot of people, there's in fact 2 billion people in the world who suffer from malnutrition um, and are not getting enough nutrients. And not just nutrients, but like micronutrients. So you can also get enough calories without getting all of the things that you need in your diet. Um, and they say that there's almost 400,000 vascular plants, um, thousands of which are edible, but a lot of them, they're edible, but we don't actually know what's in them as far as nutrients. So the, the researchers used phylogenetic information, so looking at sort of the relationship across plants, to look to see which plants might have large amounts of vitamin B in it. So I think, Yara, maybe you know this, but vitamin B is something that we quite often get from meat. So if you have a more plant-based diet, you can often be deficient in vitamin D. Uh, vitamin B. I really can't speak. Um, <laughs> so... They managed to predict that over 6,000 edible plant species had potentially promising vitamin B profiles. Um, mm -hmm. And then they found a thousand of those were promising sources. And they also sort of looked at where these plants are and whether they're threatened or not and sort of highlight that some of them should really be considered for conservation now before we lose them. But I think it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, we, we always talk about this diversification of food sources and looking at different crops. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's something I've heard also in the context of a more uh, regional agriculture where we replace certain grains or certain yeah certain certain fruit and vegetables that we grow with alternatives that are like less popular on by the consumer but of or for consumers but that just grow better for example in germany where where i am um I think this will become increasingly more important to sort of fall back to all the things that we've eaten in the past and find new things that we don't know about yet that have certain properties that we need. And just to mention, one of the species that they highlight is your cowpea that you brought up <laughs> earlier on. Also, some other legumes, so adzuki beans, um, mung beans, some tree beans, cluster beans, and vetches, which I think we've come across in one of the books we've read. Also, some species of oat, um, including Ethiopian oats, seems to be possibly full of vitamin B. And some sort of threatened species, so durian. Mm -hmm. Um the, the sort of the wild version of that yeah durian is the infamous stinky fruit right that's like banned on certain subways in the countries where it's eaten yeah this is this is the kind of cousin of that um so maybe it says it has a blander flavor so maybe it also has 
a less smelly smell as well. And also baobab, so this tree that is really swollen on the trunk um, is another potential. So it also has mm-hmm. the, the possibility to be included here. So we'll put the link to the paper, but also there's a nice sort of um, overview of this on the Q website. The last thing that I have for today is very simple. I found this on Twitter, just a 3D printed... 3D plot from a mass spectrometry experiment. And I found it's fairly cool because in science we deal all the time with um, <clears throat> different plots of our measurements and sometimes they are three-dimensional that we can still, with clever coloring and stuff, figure it out. Sometimes they're even more dimensional uh, and then it becomes really hard to understand it. And this is one very tactile approach to it um we'll put a link uh, like a photo the picture of it also in the chapter uh in the chapter art so on your podcast player you can see it or you can click on the link and it really is just a, a 3d print of the plot um and maybe it just resonated with me because i've looked at mass spec data before and i had to look at, at such plots before uh and i i don't know it it did something to me to see the spikes that you usually see in grayscale on a on a plot on a mm-hmm. on a screen see them in in this case in green filament printed in real life um spiking upwards and then you can sort of even feel around and and with your fingers experience um the the mass spec data the protein data or i actually don't know if it was proteins that they looked at um but the mass spectrometry data uh uh, and like the researcher said that they had to like optimize the process quite a bit to to print this because it's not you can't just click print on your mass spec software and then you get like a 3D printer going. You have to do all kinds of data wrangling to get it to this shape. And this is also something that resonated with me because when I had to look at mass spec data, I would much rather figure out a way to put this into my 3D printer than actually analyzing the data. <laughs> I would have been there um, and being like doing test runs and, and figuring out which size of nozzle my 3D printer needs to, to print this properly instead of just analyzing the data and writing up my paper um, and uh, yeah, focus on that, procrastinate with that. Cat fact. Um, I found um, a fact. <laughs> I put the wrong link in my notes. I just found it. Figured that out. But that's a problem for future Europe. I found a story um, <laughs> about a very large cat and its impact on seed dispersal of a palm tree. And it's a very indirect uh, impact on that. Um, there's ocelots uh, in the area where these palm trees are growing. And the ocelots, they poo and pee everywhere. And then there's a very small rodent, the agouti, who smells that and doesn't really like that and goes away from these areas where they find ocelot um, droppings. And this this rodent is one of the main pollinators or, or disp- not even pollinators one of the main dispersal mechanisms of the seeds of the palm tree Atalea butyracea and this means that when there's ocelots there's less uh, agoutis and therefore less seed dispersal and therefore the, the palm tree can't make as like cover as much land as it like evolutionary speaking wanted to and um yeah, this is not, first of all, an interesting effect. And you might think like, oh, so maybe should we do something about the ocelots so then the agoutis can do their job so the palm trees can disperse their seeds because it's good, right, if they disperse their seeds. As it turns out, it's actually not that that great. It's actually beneficial that the ocelots are keeping the agoutis away because this increases the um, biodiversity in these forests because then the trees can't overtake the forest because their dispersal is limited and they can't just become the dominant tree species in the area by just overgrowing everywhere because they are so so efficiently um, dispersing their seeds. So it's just one of these like tiny, unexpected regulatory mechanisms that keep the whole ecosystem in a in a more like in a more biodiverse state, so to say, um, without like putting any intention on any player in there. Like it's not that the ocelots do that on purpose, but I just found it very cool that because just the ocelots say poo and pee everywhere, a palm tree can't disperse as far <laughs> as it wants to. That's quite cool. And with that, I think we're at the end of the show. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, send us stuff, rate us, do, I don't know, be nice. You can find me on Twitter. That's at Plants for Pets. 
And Facebook sometimes and Instagram more often. It's at Plants and the Pets. There you can talk to me. Um, we have a website where you find this podcast, more information on plants, and like a huge backlog of uh, articles we wrote about the world of plant science. That's on plantsandpipettes.com. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gruss. See you next week, guys. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.